them out of bondage. And having brought them out of bondage, he goes ahead and gives them the Ten Commandments, saying, I'm the God who loves you, who's done all of this for you. So in order to stay out of that, here are these beautiful Ten Commandments that depict my love, what my government is founded on, and I want for you to live out this same loving character of loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is the picture of of what God did originally and what he intended to do in bringing Israel out of Egypt. But here's the question. What happens shortly after they're given the Ten Commandments? The first commandment was you should have no other gods before me. The second commandment was you should not make for yourself a carved image. What did they do as Moses went up on the mountain to receive the engraved Ten Commandments? They formed a golden calf and worshipped it and said, let's follow this back to Egypt. Again and again, they, their hearts, Acts 7.39 says, in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They said, God, this is nice of you to bring us out of slavery, but we just want to go back into it. Why would anybody do that? You know, Corey and I were on a trip up to uh, Sacramento for GYC West here uh, at the beginning of the summer. And while we were there, we stayed in a, a motel that they had provided for us that was a little, would you say it was a little sketchy, Corey? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't super sketchy, but it was, it was a, a cheap motel. So we went to sleep after the Friday night meeting, and we were there sleeping peacefully. At least I remember being sleeping peacefully. But then periodically, it's like, you know how it goes when something's going on and you're not sure what's happening? Well, I started hearing this screaming, and I, I, I at first thought it was part of my dreams. I kind of woke up. I said, Lord, help whoever's screaming go back to sleep. But before long, it was like you couldn't sleep anymore. And both Corey and I are awake. We hear things slamming around in the room next to us, and we hear this guy cursing this woman. We don't know what she's saying. We don't know what she's done. And I don't know the whole story, but I know that he is throwing things around. He's yelling at her. He's livid. So I go outside and I, I try to figure out what I could do to possibly help. And right as I go outside the room, the door of that room opens up. And on the other side, one of the neighbors was also out his door. And this guy just comes running out as fast as he can. He's carrying a little ice chest with him. He goes down. He goes down the stairway. He's going to his truck. And as he's going to his truck, suddenly the door opens again. And out comes this woman. My heart broke because I don't know what the situation is, but I watched as she ran as fast as she could to the stairway. And she began running down the stairs. And as he slammed the door of the truck and started it up and started to leave, she immediately jumped to the door of the truck. She opened the door of the truck and she jumped inside the truck to go with a man who's obviously abusive, obviously angry. I don't know the whole story, but I know that as I looked at the other neighbor who was the next room over, he said, did, did she just get in the truck with him? Did she just go with him? Why did she do that? Why, what, what is she thinking? Why would she go with a man like that? It happens all too often. And if you're in a situation like that, talk to somebody. 
Come talk to, to me or to one of the elders. Talk to John Doran. He knows experiences like that. But why is it that they find again and again that prostitutes who are released from their life often run back into it? Prisoners who are released from prison often go back into prison. Why is it that even when the Emancipation Proclamation happened and and slaves were freed, that many of them went back to the plantations because that was what was comfortable. That was what they knew. Why is it that we so often go back to Egypt? You see, that's what Israel did in their hearts. Acts 7.39 tells us that they they turned back to Egypt. They may not have had Egypt as what they were walking on, but they had Egypt in their hearts. Today, you might find that, that oftentimes you're turning back to the things that you don't understand. Here, God is He is bringing His Son into the world. He is brought as the representative of you and I. He is brought over the same exact footsteps where Israel had failed. He's brought to Egypt and He's called out of Egypt because it's Christ's righteousness that prevails and not ours. You see, he was brought over the same path as Israel. And if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you find that step by step, that is the way that Jesus grows up. He's brought to the waters of baptism, which some compare to to going through the Red Sea. Immediately after that, he spends how long in the wilderness? 40 days and 40 nights. How long... Did the Israelites spend wandering in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy? Forty years. You find that Jesus throughout His life is the representative of all of humanity. And in Him, we have victory. In Christ, we prevail. And so you find Paul in Galatians chapter 5. He is so upset With the Galatians. Go with me to Galatians chapter 5. Maybe upset's not the word. Maybe distraught is a better word for it. But in Galatians chapter 5, as he looks at the Galatians, and he's, he's, he's writing them this letter, and his heart is breaking. Look at what it breaks for. Ephesians chapter, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Something's happened with the Galatians. And if you study Galatians like we did in our Sabbath school lesson uh, last quarter, you find that, that they're going back to looking to ceremonies, to looking to the law, to looking to religious formalism in order to satisfy the void of their hearts, to feel like they can measure up. And Paul's saying, don't go back to with a yoke of bondage. And really, what was that bondage? What was that bondage for Israel? In John chapter 8, Jesus, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And in verse 33, they respond to him and they say, We are children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anybody. 
Apparently, they didn't know their history too well. Or maybe they pictured that, that somehow they had some autonomy within their, their structure there in Jerusalem. But Jesus responds by this. I believe it's verse 34. He says, Whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin. Whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin. Do you see the bondage that Jesus wants to bring you out of? He wants to bring you out of the bondage of sin. That's exactly what the angels declared that Jesus' name should be called Jesus. Matthew 1 verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He wants to deliver people. He wants to take you out of bondage. He doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to offer you a better He wants to bring you into the promised land. And so Paul's saying, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Verse 2, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Okay, don't, don't get worried. Let's keep reading here, okay? Some of you might be worried right now that Christ might profit you nothing because of circumcision, but there's good news. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. What he's talking about here is the act of being circumcised for the purpose of saying that you are a son of Abraham because of that circumcision that you are saved. It's not just the the actual act of circumcision, but the meaning behind it. Then verse 5, notice this. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. There it is. The only time that you'll find in your English Bible that it says righteousness by faith. And this may be a term that you've heard before. And if you're anything like me, you may think, oh yeah, here we go. This is a theological concept that people talk about and discuss and it sounds like some sort of high church language, and I don't really, really care that much. Righteousness by faith. Here's the question. What is righteousness? Right? So this is the first thing that we come to here. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. What is righteousness? Well, a common definition is that righteousness is right doing. Now, that's, that's a good definition. It's not a terrible definition. Um, but I believe that it's so much bigger and more beautiful than that. In the book, Mount of Blessings, it gives us thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. It gives us this biblical description by pulling a few verses together that, that shows us what righteousness is all about. And righteousness is beautiful. Says this, righteousness is holiness, likeness to God. And God is what does it say? God is love. Righteousness is holiness, holiness is likeness to God, and God is love. First John four sixteen. It is conformity to the law of God, for all thy commandments are righteousness. Psalm one nineteen one seventy two. And love is the fulfilling of the law, Romans 13.10. You see the progression here. God is love, and so 
all of the commandments are righteousness, and, and love is the fulfilling of the law. So righteousness is what? Love. So it goes on to say righteousness is love, and love is the light and the life of God. Have you pictured that before? That this is everything for us in the Christian experience. That that being righteous by faith means that you and I become loving beings. That's what God wants to give to you and I. He wants to fulfill the law in our lives. And he wants to do it by making us, you might say, relationally faithful. Filled with the love of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? We've looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that says love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, it does not boast, it is not arrogant, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, it doesn't seek its own. These are the attributes of love. And any human being looking at those attributes knows that love is beautiful. We all want love in our lives. We all want to experience relational faithfulness. We want to to experience closeness. We want to experience relationships with each other that are not marred by selfishness, that are not marred by anger and strife, but that are beautiful, that are filled with love. That's what righteousness by faith is describing. And it's also describing a love towards God, of having a radical love for God. And, and that really should be the motivating factor. I mean, imagine if every Sabbath morning you wake up and you're so in love with Jesus that you can't wait to get to Sabbath school to study the Bible because you can't wait to share what you've learned through the week. You can't wait to, to meet with brothers and sisters who love Jesus too. I want that, don't you? I want a, a greater experience of this. And we might feel like, well, we have this. We don't have bondage in our lives, but clearly all of us still have bondage in our life, don't we? If it's defined as Jesus described it, that whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin, then all of us need to understand this concept more clearly of who Jesus is. Because then and only then, will we be transformed. And until we experience a life without sin, a life that is full of love, not just in closing ourselves off from the world, but also in radicalizing the world, when we experience that to the fullest, then we can stop talking about righteousness by faith. But here's the thing. When we just read that, we might look at that and feel like, well, that's great. That sounds wonderful. So righteousness by faith, then I better start believing more. I I better start believing in Jesus more. I better start working this out in my experience because this is essential. Have you ever felt that way? I know I've felt that way a lot. If I just had enough faith, if only I really believed who God was and I really believed, then all of this would be solved. But Paul doesn't stop there. There's a verse that's become more and more dear to me, and that is verse 6. Verse 6 says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. 
just pause there because for us today, this isn't a big issue. But for the Galatians, circumcision was the hot-button topic. For us today, it's not that big of a deal. So if you mind, let's look at this in another way. For it says here, in Christ Jesus, we might say, not anything avail, that nothing avails anything but faith working through love. All right, it didn't strike me as amazing the first time I read it either. That's okay. This is a, a key for us. It's basically saying that nothing else matters, but again, there's faith there. So does this mean, okay, so I've got to start believing more. I've really got to come to the place where I believe. Well, before we look at this verse a little bit more, I want to give you an illustration. Uh, about 12 years ago, I went through a, a rough breakup. I've told you about it before where I'd been in a relationship for three years and the girl was asking me to marry her and I had, had this thought that we were going to live our lives together. And when that came to an end, it was heartbreaking for me. But God is merciful to me. And within a month, I had met Leah. And as I met Leah, and we talked together, and we developed our relationship, and we began to fall in love, we were just within a week or two of having started dating when I got a phone call. And it wasn't that odd. It was from my ex-girlfriend. We still talked. We still remained friends. But she had found out, or maybe I told her, that I was now dating Leah. And as I talked to her, I don't want to paint her in a bad picture, but I want to give you an illustration that she was basically inviting me back to Egypt. She was saying, hey, <laughs> we've had three years together. You've been with this girl for a couple of weeks, and I want you back. She left me for another guy, but she's calling me saying, I think that there's so much that we share together. We're planning on getting married. We're planning on living our lives together. Let's get back together? Is there any possibility that we can get back together? That's what the devil tries to do in our lives. He comes to us with that favorite thing in our lives, or he brings that temper that we have that keeps separating us from our spouse or whatever it is in our lives, and he says, you know what? You failed here again and again and again in your life, so just go back to Egypt. Just give up. Just trust that Jesus is your Savior and go ahead and, and live that life. But I'll tell you that something was different on that phone call for me. I now loved Leah far more than I loved my ex-girlfriend. We'd only known each other for a week or so, but the love that Leah showed me, the patience she showed me, the, the selfless type of love that she showed me, I had to tell her over the phone, I said, I'm sorry, <laughs> but... For your own sake, I don't think that this is going to work out. I don't know that I could trust you or love you like I did before. I didn't break it to her, but I was in love with Leah, and that was enough. This is what Paul is saying to the Galatians here. He says, nothing really matters except for this, faith working by love. And you see that when it says faith working by love, that's the Greek word energeo. What does that sound like? Energy. He's saying faith is energized by what? 
by love. So do you see, righteousness is love. It's relational faithfulness. It's, it's us loving others and God. It's us being unselfishly focused on the interests of others. Righteousness is love. And love comes as we are righteous by faith. Now that faith is energized by what? Let's look at it. Faith working through love. Faith energized through love. So back to the story in Bethlehem. God revealed a love that surpasses our greatest understanding as He Himself stepped down and was born as a baby. The God of the universe, the Creator, steps into creation because He can't stand to be apart from you. You know that Tempe, she couldn't stand to be separated from her lover, Squire. She wanted to do whatever it took to be with Squire. She was desperate to be with Squire. And so she began to gather all of her resources, all the money that she could, and to stash it away in her room. And one night, in the middle of the night, she ran away from the plantation. Now, I forgot part of the story, and that is that Squire was sold by Mr. James to another slave owner in order to separate him from Tempe. But Tempe ran away, and Tempe went on a search. She said, I've got to find out where Squire is. I want to know where Squire is. I want to find him. And she took all the money she had with her, and she went to the owner of Squire, and she said, I want to buy Squire. And he responded by allowing her to buy Squire. And the two of them were able to leave. And Squire, for the first time in his life, had his freedom. Now, at this point in time, it would seem like everything worked out for Tempe, but there was still a problem. And that was this. It was against the law for any white girl to get married to a Negro. If they didn't have a... It said if they didn't have any type of... Negro blood was the wording that they used, flowing through their veins, and that they could not get married. So what was she to do? Do you think that she would stop there? Do you think that that love would ever stop? And this is what we see in Jesus, that Jesus comes all the way down. Hebrews chapter 2 in verse 14 says that He was made in all things like us. That he stooped down as low as possible. He went all the way into Egypt as a representation that he stepped down to where you and I are to lift us up out of the mire. Or as Leo loves to say, out of the cesspool of human existence. Jesus came down into that and he lifts us up. And it's based on his righteousness not ours. And as we fix our eyes on His love, it changes absolutely everything for us. In the desire of ages, it describes the problem that the Pharisees had. It describes the problem that that began to arise in the Jews' heart that led them to miss the point. Matthew's trying to help the Jews see the point. You see that Jesus was taken into Egypt. He was was called out of Egypt like, like Israel of old. And in Hosea chapter 11, read that chapter, it's beautiful. God says that he called them out with cords of love. 
He was drawing Israel with cords of love. And he said, what can I do? He said, my heart is churned within me. You keep backsliding, but I don't want to let you go. I want to save you out of Egypt. Desire of Ages, page 35, it says this, the principle that man can save himself by his own works lay at the foundation of every heathen religion. It had now become the principle of the Jewish religion. Satan had implanted this principle. Wherever it is held, men have no barrier against sin. The scribes and the Pharisees, they had begun to to guard the Sabbath. They'd begun to guard their ritual purity. They began to do all of these things possible to keep themselves pure. And they began to trust that they could become righteous in themselves. But this is an impossibility. Apart from Jesus, we have no righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah chapter 64 tells us. But it wasn't just the conservatives, those who were trying to follow religious formalism, who ran into this power, this problem. Joseph Klosner, in the book The Messianic Idea in Israel, says this about King Herod. You remember that King Herod is the one who's trying to kill Jesus. If anybody missed the Messiah, it was Herod. He was trying to kill him. He was trying to do away with him. says this, But we have evidence that Herod regarded himself as Messiah. Herod thought that he could save himself. He didn't do it in the same way. He didn't go after it with religious rites and ceremonies. He did it by hedonistic pleasures, by Hellenistic pleasures, by trying to to defend himself and live his life his own way. In our lives, These are the two ditches that we fall into. On the one hand, we want to live life for ourselves. We don't want to give up Egypt. We want to enjoy our lives for ourselves. And we're trying to be our own savior. On the other hand, we might rely on our rights and our rituals, on being faithful to God, and that our faithfulness will somehow measure up enough. But that can never merit anything. In the... uh, The book, The Faith I Live By, it says this. What is the key? It's righteousness by faith. Page 111, it says, When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When we recognize that we have nothing, our faith can be energized by the love of a God who looks on us with favor, who says, goodwill and peace on earth to a sinful race that is turned back to Egypt and he's calling his son out of Egypt because he loves him and in Christ all of us can experience victory the thought that the righteousness of Christ continuing is imputed to us not because of any merit on our part but as a free gift from God is a precious thought the enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented for he knows that if the people receive it fully his power will be broken. Do you see that on the one hand? There's only two religions where every single human being is either trying to earn their way to salvation, and this is what the enemy uses, whether it's through hedonistic pleasure or whether it's through trying to earn our righteousness. 
That's what the enemy tries to use as a barrier to keep us from a righteous life. But here it says that when we recognize that we have nothing, we're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and that then the enemy has no power. His power is broken over us. One more uh, powerful quote in uh, the book Faith in Works, page 24, says this, The Lord Jesus imparts all the powers, all the grace, all the penitence, all the inclination, all the pardon of sins in presenting his righteousness for man to grasp by living faith, which is also the gift of God. I love the children's story. (laughs) Recognizing that Jesus is the gift of gifts. Do you see here? What part do we have to play? Our repentance is from God. The grace is from God. Every single bit of our Christian walk is from God. Jesus, and it's all a gift, and He wants to give it to you this Christmas. Don't walk out of here without receiving it, without fixing your eyes on the Lamb of God and on His love, which takes away the sin of the world. goes on to say, There is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. I'm not going to apologize for going back to righteousness by faith repeatedly because this is what we need. We haven't grasped it yet because we're still living in bondage. We haven't fully been set free. But God is longing to do that. Jesus reveals that to us as he was in heaven and all the angels and other beings, I imagine, were trying to get him to let them go instead. And he recognized that only he could come and fulfill all of the places where you and I have fallen. Only he could come and give us righteousness. And the desire of ages says that Jesus did not count heaven a place to be desired while we were lost. And Tempe, she didn't consider that all that stuff that she had on that plantation was something to be desired while she didn't have that loving relationship with Squire. She went and she bought Squire. And then, because of that law, she actually went and she took uh, took Squire's finger. She made a little cut in it. She took a drink and she put a little of that blood into the drink She took that drink and she drank it and then she went to the court so that she could be an honest girl as they asked her, do you have any Negro blood in you? She said, I most certainly do. Tempe was energized by love and Tempe and Squire got married and this story was told by one of Tempe's 15 children who were born free because of the sacrifice that Tempe made. You and I can be free because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made, but will we be motivated by the love of Jesus? I just want to challenge you. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters but to love because He has first loved you. So start off with focusing on the love of Jesus. This Christmas, I challenge you to pray this prayer every single morning when you wake up. Psalm chapter 143, verse 8, it says, Cause me 
to, know, to, to hear your loving kindness in the morning. Ask God to reveal His love to you. Go in the morning. You know, it's become the most precious time to me in the morning. When I wake up, I can't wait to go and grab my Bible and to run to Jesus because that is the only thing that changes my heart. It's fixing my eyes on the love of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, here we are. We recognize that though we don't like to admit it, just like the Pharisees didn't want to admit it, that we're still in bondage. We continue in sin. But God, we want to live lives of love. That's the only way that we can truly obey anyway. So Lord, would you help us to fix our eyes on the Lamb of God? Would you help us to fix our eyes on the baby who went to Egypt for us, who went down to the lowest depths to bring us up so that we could have life, would you energize our faith by love and lead us to live righteous lives by faith? Would you fill us with your own righteousness, I pray, in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.